0: I'm thinking it's about that
1: time. People are kind of straggling in, but. Before I forget, next week there will be no class here. We're doing a combined class because Dr. Jerry Taylor is in town. He'll be speaking during class time and uh, during worship. So I assume we'll be meeting in the auditorium or in the gym. Okay. So please come to that. We're all really looking forward to it. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. So in case you've wandered in off the street and haven't been here for the last however many weeks, um, this class is Love First. Um, So just talking about how when Jesus talked about the greatest commandment, it was all about love and how really we've gotten messed up along the way when love has not come first. We're specifically talking about it in terms of working towards racial unity. You could take this concept and apply it to any different area, but we're specifically talking about racial unity Um, So, first we want to start with scripture. 1 Corinthians 4-7 says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So, who remembers what we talked about last week?
2: Economic disadvantage by race.
1: Yeah. So, Hannah talked about economic development and how there's you know whole systems at play in this. And she also talked about fortune, chance, mm-hmm. and luck. So where fortune is really something you have zero control over, chance, you're somehow active in it, and luck is more or less just completely astronomical odds, just wow, this just happened out of the blue. So I picked this verse because if we think about the fortunate circumstances of our birth, most of us here were white, we're middle, maybe upper middle class, in one of the wealthiest nations in history. We've received so much, and yet a lot of the times we say, "Oh, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps." You know, I, I did all this. I've, I, I I've had to work hard in life. Um, that's necessarily doesn't. It's not necessarily true that you haven't worked hard. But let's be honest. We've received a whole lot in life from God. So. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be white. We've heard from others about what it means to be black, to be an immigrant, to be native, to be an interracial couple, but we haven't really talked about what it means to be white. Um, and that's really kind of typical when we talk about race, because whiteness is usually never discussed. When we talk about race, someone else has race. The race problem is someone else's problem, and I'm usually separate from it. So. A quick word before we get too far into this. Um, A lot of this here is based on this book, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. I highly recommend it. Um, That said, it's obviously not the gospel, but I think she's got a lot of good points in here. Um, Highly recommend picking up a copy if you are interested in this. But one of the things she says is, suspended individuality to focus on group identity is good for white people. We don't often do that. We always think of ourselves as unique and objective and we ignore the fact that socialization plays a huge role in who we are, what we believe, the way we act. But the reverse, suspending individuality for people of color has a very different impact historically where you're talking about those people, they always do this. So, since most of us here are white, we can talk about white people collectively, but let's not turn that into other groups and say, you know, I hate it when they do this or stuff like that. Um, it doesn't matter where you're from, when you're born, it would easy, be easy for me to say, you know what, I was born after the Civil Rights Movement. I had people of color in my house on a regular basis. I don't have any of these problems, but the truth is I've been impacted by racism and the racism, racist systems in this country that we learned about last week. And at some point, we've all internalized these things without even knowing it. So I would encourage all of us, instead of trying to say, oh, well, this doesn't affect me, this is my problem, let's be honest. If you have spent any time in America, you know a thing or two about race. And instead of trying to defend yourself from that and saying you're not part of it, Let's just accept the fact that, yeah, I've been influenced by this and figure out what we can do to change, the, change those beliefs. Um, I don't know if it's just the, the confirmation bias where, you know, you buy a Jeep, every other Jeep on the, every other car on the Jeep is, a, every other car on the road is a Jeep. There we go. Um, but as I spent time thinking about whiteness, it's everywhere, and an unhealthy white, Identity is everywhere. Just on Friday, I found three or four different articles in the news about this. So Tucker Carlson, a uh, you know one of those talking heads on on Fox News, said white nationalism is a hoax. One of his other anchors, Jeff Smith, said no, it's not a hoax. It is a problem. There was a straight pride group saying no, we're a peaceful racist group. Apparently, he didn't mean to say that because he tried to correct himself when everyone laughed. And then on the other side of the coin, there's Rosanna Arquette, who says she feels shame and disgust about being born white and privileged. So there's some extremes there, and I don't think any of those are healthy. Um, You know, I think about with Rosanna Arquette, Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. Jesus never said, yeah, hate yourself. Look down on something you can't control. So as we talk through all of these things, We're not saying you need to feel shame, you need to feel guilt about being white. That's not healthy. Let's just acknowledge that we've internalized some beliefs and figure out how to do better going forward. So what does it mean to be white to you? And this is an open dialogue here. (laughs) What does it mean to be white? Have any of you even given that much thought? As Gina and I talked about this, one of the things we said was, it means belonging. Anywhere I go, I'm probably not going to be seen as standing out.
2: Well, so I remember one of the first times I went somewhere that I was the minority, which where I went to Los Angeles to visit Julie for a summer um, for about a week or so, before we were married. Her brother and her cousin decided to take me to Compton on a Saturday night. <laughs> and uh, i didn't even know i should be scared or be worried they were trying to play a trick on me just have fun with it mm-hmm. um but uh i that was the first time i think that i, I noticed people giving me a second glance yeah.
1: and and even if you've been in a situation like that usually mm-hmm. it's mostly avoidable
2: and it's very yeah. temporary right yeah yeah we just went to the taco truck we're
0: back. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Japan for five years, and I lived, there, and I lived in Japan, and one day I was at the, just at the intersection, you know, when lights change, wearing a, a red dress in the summer, and I looked around and it's a sea of black and gray suits and all Japanese, and I looked like a songbird standing <laughs> out <laughs> in the middle of a... Mm -hmm. And it it was really startling because it was probably my first time that I realized, oh, I don't really belong Mm -hmm. here. I I liked it, and I enjoyed it, and I got used to it, but that was a real – it was startling to not belong because I've always lived in the mostly Black community. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. I was on a business trip to Atlanta. uh, 20 years ago at this point, um, the conference was in North Atlanta and we decided after it was over that we were going to go to a hotel that was down closer to the airport and on the way down there we saw a mall and so we pulled into it and we went in to eat and the only other non-black person in the whole mall was a Chinese guy working at the Chinese restaurant in the food court. and. As we walked through the mall, we just kind of were looking around, and the I mean, like all, it was a Christmas time, so all the Santa Clauses were black, all the angels were black. I mean, it was just a completely different uh, look from what we were used to. But, but I felt like the way people were looking at us, they were more uncomfortable with us being there than we were uncomfortable being there. We just kind of got a lot of odd looks like, What are you doing in our mall? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh. What about the term white privilege? What do you think or what do you feel when you hear that word? Or were you gonna talk about, about the first 30 question?
2: About years ago, I started traveling a fair amount internationally. And during that time, it hardly mattered where you went. If you were white and you were American, you gained instant respect, mm-hmm. instant credibility, people would listen to you, um, esteem all those words. Um, Now, when I travel internationally, I feel, perhaps, disrespect. I don't think other countries respect Americans. Very much anymore because of what they see happening in our country and what they believe is the standard in our country. A lot of that's what they see on television, unfortunately. Um, Yeah? I was uh,
3: riding with my mom in the car and she had talk radio on and I was saying, yeah, some people are, you know, more white than others. And I immediately thought, because I'm like super pale, I'm like, yeah, I'm
4: so white.
3: <laughs> he was talking about they feel, they feel more privileged. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm white. And I, I have this right to be here. And, and um, they, they shouldn't feel that
0: way. Right. But it was funny that I took it the other
4: way. <laughs> yes. Erica. You know, I just never even thought of the word white privilege until how long has it been out there in the world for the last two years, three years. Um, But you know, when we're talking about, I don't think I ever felt like that because um, we're talking years ago living around oakland um i went and i got fired from one job and immediately went to the courthouse or whatever the the government job and i applied and um they said okay come back and take the test and i went back took the (coughs) test and then they said okay come back and we'll discuss (laughs) where you're at. And she, I went back, and she said, you've had the highest score of anyone that's ever taken this test, but we can't hire you. And I said, why is that? She said, because you're the wrong color. (laughs) And that just kind of floored me. It didn't stop me because I went immediately out and looking for you know a different place that would hire me. But that was the first thing that happened to me where it was reverse discrimination. And another time, I, this one was not too long ago, I had a um, African American working for me, and her name was also African. But, um, and she was, she just was not a good employee. And she kept trying to break the law in my business, and you just don't do that. And I would reprimand her, write her up, tell her no, you cannot do that, please don't. She kept doing it, I fired her, and I was then called a racist for firing her. And uh, that's happened to me twice in my job. And so it's kind of, um, I was reluctant then to hire anyone of color because you had to walk on eight shelves. You had to be careful what you said. Me, I am misfriendly, Friendly, I think. And it, it really stifled me, and I didn't like it.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot to explore there. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have time for all of that. So how many of you were here when Don McLaughlin spoke? So when he talked about white privilege, he talked a lot about it in terms of access, Mm -hmm. um, similar to the way Hannah talked about it. So being denied the right to education, historically, uh, the right to buy houses in certain neighborhoods. And that's certainly a huge part um, but there's also a lot more subtle ways this plays out, like who gets the benefit of the doubt in a certain situation? Um, what about when called out on racism, you know, do we rush to defend the intentions of the white person or do we believe the person of color and say, you know what, that, you're right, that was, did have some racist impact there? Uh, how are you treated when you walk into an upscale store? Are you followed? You have someone watching you constantly. Um, You know, there's the girl, was it at Princeton or something? She was taking a nap in the dorm.
3: She'd fallen asleep in the chair, in the lobby of her dorm, and the police were called on her because students didn't think she was a student there. Wow.
1: (sighs) And yeah, and we all groaned because obviously that's never happened to us. Um, So we've got a quick, video here that hey, line I think up. helps line explain up. It.
5: everybody line up we're about to race get hey, the lights everybody line up shoulder to shoulder take off your backpacks Fastball, line up we're about to race and hey, we are we are racing for a hundred dollar bill the winner of this race will take this a hundred dollar bill Before I say go, I'm going to make a couple statements. If those statements apply to you, I want you to take two steps forward. If those statements don't apply to you, I want you to stay right where you're at. Take two steps forward if both of your parents are still married. Take two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. Take two steps forward if you had access to a private education. Take two steps forward if you had access to a free tutor growing up. Take two steps forward if you never had to worry about your cell phone being shut off. steps forward if you never had to help mom or dad with the bills. Take two steps forward if it wasn't because of your athletic ability you don't have to pay for college. Take two steps forward if you never wondered where your next meal was going to come from. I want you guys up here in the front just to turn around and look. every statement I've made has nothing to do with anything any of you have done has nothing to do with decisions you've made everything I've said has nothing to do with what you've done we all know these people here have a better opportunity to win this hundred dollars. Does that mean these people back here can't race? No. We would be foolish to not realize we've been given more opportunity we don't want to recognize that we've been given a head start but the reality is we have Now, there's no excuse they still gotta run their race you still gotta run your race but whoever wins this hundred dollars I think it would be extremely foolish of you not to utilize that and learn more about somebody else's story because the reality is if this was a fair race And everybody who's back on that line, I guarantee you some of these black dudes would smoke, all of you. And it's only because you have this big of a head start that you're possibly going to win this race called life. That is a picture of life, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing you've done has put you in the lead that you're in right now. When I say go, on your mark, get set. (laughs) Go! If you didn't learn anything from this activity, you're a fool.
1: What are some initial thoughts there? You stop the video. Apparently. It just makes me want to cry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is that? Yeah.
4: Because it's just not fair. And how do those young people in the back of that line that had to stay put and watch everybody else take two steps forward? How does it make them feel about who they are? How do those people that step forward, unless they have
6: a group of people to help them <coughs> with what 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 they want to accomplish, they may not accomplish it
1: exactly um, and and that's really what this is all about is we so often want to ignore all the ways that we've been helped out, whether we're aware of them or not and Um, There was a great quote in this book here that says, if I'm not aware of the barriers you face, I'm not motivated to remove them. So, you know, like you said, if you win this $100 and don't learn something about someone else, you're foolish. Um, Yes.
7: I just got to make a comment. I've had discussions similar to this with very close friends who are um, white and when I brought it to their attention about some of the disparities our lives have lived, at that time, many of my very close white friends will say, I am so sorry you have had to do this. It just aches me, I, I feel the burning in my heart. And I challenge them to say, well, you're feeling that now because I've brought it up to you and we're having this dialogue and conversation. But can you imagine if I didn't, You've just been living this life having no idea mm-hmm. what I experienced. And I applaud them for sharing their their heartfelt being pulled and, and strung, but to me I always think, What? Are you living under a rock? I don't understand how someone cannot understand these differences that most of my life I've had to deal with.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, someone shared with me this idea of a step. So if we say that we want to be welcoming to all people, we want our home to be welcoming to all people, and yet the step to get up into our house is about yay high. Well, that (coughs) precludes people who aren't able-bodied. Anyone in a wheelchair, they're not gonna be able to get up a step that's two or three feet high. Someone that's elderly might not be able to get into your house. You might think, that you're welcoming, that you, you know, love all people equally, but you just might not see this barrier that's in someone else's way. Mm-hmm. And, until someone else says, hey, there's all these people who just can't get up above this step. You're able-bodied, not everyone else is. It's the same thing with a lot of other um, areas of our life. Um,
4: so. yeah, what I saw in that video too was the all the young people in the back basically looking at how far ahead everybody else mm-hmm. was and understandably looking around, you know, giving up. Because mm-hmm. how can you, how yeah, can you possibly, if you don't feel like you can possibly overcome it, then why would you, you know, what's your motivation to, to work hard? And I applaud people who do keep going and, and strive and work really hard under
1: those circumstances, but mm-hmm. it's not easy. Uh, you'll notice in that video there is even a few white people on the starting line. Mm-hmm. He was talking about just privilege in general terms. Yes. So when we talk about white privilege, we're not saying you haven't worked hard, you haven't struggled, you've had everything handed <coughs> to you on a silver spoon, we're just saying, you have not had to face the particular barrier of racism. So let's just spend a brief moment defining racism real quick. There's lots of different definitions out here. This is one that I think works well. So prejudice is prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs. Discrimination in turn is action based on prejudice. So Erica, when you said, first time I experienced reverse discrimination, that was exactly the word because that was someone acting on that belief. Racism though is, when, she says, when a group, racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed into racism, a far-reaching system that functions independently from the, the intentions or self-images of individual actors. In other words, racism is a structure, not an event. And we're not just talking about, when we say le- the power of legal authority and institutional control, we're not just talking about slavery. We're talking about incarceration. We're talking about schools like we talked about last week. So many different areas of institutional control. Um, an important thing to point out is reverse racism when it's a system really, d- it's, it doesn't exist. Because the oppressed can't deny the civil rights of the group in control. So you think about women's suffrage. Could women say, you know what, we don't like this. We're gonna deny men the right to vote. No. They had to wait for men to give them the right to vote.
6: Okay, so we talk about racism, um, and you guys know on the Native American history, so these are facts that you should consider that America does to Native American Indians. Black people, black Americans got to vote before Native Americans, because why? The state determined when the Native American can vote. So the Ute Indians here in Colorado got to vote in 1973. The last state to allow their Indians to vote was in Utah in 1975. The reservation, if you guys all help with me, they got the vote, I think it was in 72, but you know what that means? All they got was the vote. If there are no voting booths on the reservation and they do not have the capability, and that's where their polling structure is, they still don't get to vote. So Native Americans who are Native Americans who have the right to vote are not given the opportunity to vote, number one. Number two, Native Americans, because we are considered a separate nation, and I have dual sovereignty, we do not get grants from Congress. So if you are a boat person, if you are a Vietnamese, if you are Asian, if you are Puerto Rican, if you are Cuban, if you are black, if you are Russian, you can get a scholarship from from Congress to go to college. If you are Native American, because we are considered a separate nation, we are, we are not supported by Congress. We cannot get a scholarship, or a grant to take us to college. Mm-hmm. And the reservation that you guys helped, when I asked them, when I went to college, if I could get money from my reservation, they said, we can give you 50 bucks. When I asked them if I could get money for my kids to go to college, they said, we might have 50 bucks. So again, we're talking about racism within racism and the fact that this structure is set up and you guys aren't even aware of it, it's education. You have to educate yourself, you do not, you should not believe the stereotype and the information that's released. You are some amazing people, you have to educate yourself.
1: Thank you. So, when we have a simplistic understanding of racism as an isolated, intentional event, we tend to fall into this good-bad binary. So, prior to the Civil Rights Movement, it was socially acceptable for white people to openly proclaim their belief in racial superiority. After the Civil Rights Movement, to be a good moral person and to be complicit with racism became mutually exclusive. In other words, only bad people were racist. So, racism becomes just simple, isolated, extreme acts of prejudice. Um, When we have this definition, we consider any challenge to our racial worldviews as a challenge to our very identities as good moral people. And we also perceive any attempt to connect us to the system of racism as an unsettling and unfair moral offense. We're taught to think about racism only as discrete acts committed by individual people rather than as a complex interconnected system, just like you talked about. So, if we want to avoid this good-bad binary, what do we do? Really, we need to see ourselves in a continuum. You know, it starts with education. Baruch, you talked about the steps of racist, segregationist, there's one in the middle, and anti-racist is really what we should be working towards. But there's a lot of steps along the way towards that. So, we should really be asking ourselves, am I actively seeking to interrupt racism in this context right here and now. So there's some challenges to talking to white people about racism. Um, One of the first challenges, we don't tend to see ourselves in racial terms. We think our experience is a universal human experience when it's not. It's a particularly white experience. we have Black History Month. What does that mean the other 11 months are? We just call it history, but really it's white history. Another challenge is our opinions are uninformed. Unless we've really spent intentional time learning about racism, then we're uninformed. I, I didn't think I was uninformed until I really started digging into this and realized how little I knew. Um, When we have that simplistic definition of racism as intentional acts of discrimination by immoral individuals, we tell ourselves we're not part of the problem and our learning is complete. Um, We also don't understand socialization. So I already talked about objectivity and individualism. We love to see ourselves as unique and objective. So individualism holds that we are each unique and stand apart from others, even those within our social groups. And objectivity tells us that it's possible to be free of all bias. And as Gina and I talked about last time we were up here, you have bias, you can't get around it. You've experienced certain things, you've heard things, you you internalize it, you can't. It's about what you do with that bias. So think for a minute about Bill Gates' son. I don't remember, it's like $23 million or something he's estimated to be worth, and he's a college student. So I think we can all agree that $23 million or something like that, which is not much considering. Um, but I think we can all agree he has some unique advantages that we don't have and that he didn't earn. Fair? Sure.
2: Yeah. I think Warren Buffett. I don't think he's given any of his money to his kids. Is
1: that what i But at the same time, do you think if his kids were in that race, would they be there on the starting line? No, of course not. No. So we can see that people like that have advantages that they haven't earned, but what about when we think of our own unearned advantages?
4: If um, if Warren Buffett may give
6: his like um some some parents may give their kids uh, money, but
3: the kids need to be responsible enough to to tell tell, tell, tell tell their puppy what they need that money for. Mm-hmm. Because we we can we can become um we we can become conceited with what, what we have. If, if 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 we get everything, then then you can get yourself into a lot of trouble.
1: Yes, you definitely can. Um, So, when we think about our own unearned advantages, that's when we love to hold on tight to this idea of individualism. Um, We also have a simplistic understanding of racism, as we already talked about, you know, isolated extreme acts of prejudice. Um, uh, Jack, you already talked at one point about whiteness as a position of status. You talked about it in the international context, but what about? here at home Um, white people and their interests are viewed as central to and representative of humanity Um, you know we talked about in terms of history but there's also just representation you know any movie book whatever can be a white character because that's seen as that's just how everyone lives life Uh, this might sound terrible and it And it is, but it's also true. Whiteness is understood to be the norm and the desired skin color. Um, So, growing up, what made a school good? What constitutes a good school? Resources. And who has those resources?
2: White people. (laughs) Your sports teams were good.
1: (laughs) And if they had good sports teams, they probably had resources.
4: Not necessarily,
1: but.
3: Something I'd like to point out about this, too. Um, I read a study, there was a woman, she was wanting to study the effect of Disney in, what, uh, in the world, not just even in the US. And for 15 years, in various countries around the world, they would ask little girls to draw princesses. And it didn't matter what country they were from, all of the princesses had fair skin. <laughs> So girls in India were drawing princesses with white skin. Girls in Africa were drawing princesses with white skin. And they would follow up with them, and they would say, well, why, why doesn't the princess have the same skin color as you? And they said, well, because they're prettier than I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you have to be white to be a princess. Mm-hmm. And so, I, like, the study was specific about you know, Disney and their influence in the world. But it just backs up this idea that white is right. White is the best. White is what everyone is aspiring to be. And if we buy into that, it's not only harming people of color, it's harming ourselves. That we're holding ourselves up as God's given people to the world.
1: Another way to think about this is where we live. So, if a neighborhood is increasing or decreasing value, what does that say about how the racial demographics are changing? If values are going up, it's probably getting wider, gentrification.
6: Hey, Eric, I think that's a stereotype, though. I mean, in this world now, we have so many multicultural families and stuff. I think that that's changing now to economic demographics more so.
1: And racial demographics? I I think there's still a very strong correlation. Um, And even in the way we just talk about neighborhoods. So white neighborhoods are usually good, safe, clean, desirable. So non-white neighborhoods in contrast are bad, dangerous, crime-ridden, something to be avoided. Um, Just this week, Joe Biden who has spent a ton of time you know, telling people about his credentials in terms of race. He said, poor kids are just as talented as white kids. He, he didn't say poor kids and rich kids or non-white kids and white kids. It's just understood poor equals non-white. Um,
7: yeah. Um, there's a, a movement that started many years ago, many, many years ago, but recently um, China put out a commercial that got a lot of bad bad news press about it but it was of skin bleaching and so they were showing um, a Chinese woman and it says you know if you want to have a better job and and look better it it shows her the next time using the skin bleaching cream to lighten her skin and right now there's a movement, not now, but has been for many years of skin Mm -hmm. bleaching in Africa where women are injecting, um, it's a chemical that changes the pigment of the skin color. And so what you start seeing now is women going underground using these um, worse chemicals from people that are charging less. And now they're coming out with um, their hair is falling out. They're having these skin lesions. And now they're kind of seeing they're ostracized in their community because it didn't complete. So now they have multicolor skin. Along with the lesions. And so um, that was something I was reading about maybe just five years ago of uh, the skin bleaching that's still taking place now in parts of Africa. Chinese are also having surgical
2: procedures on their eyes to make them more round. Skin.
1: Um, so, another way this has played out historically what color was the flesh crayon in Crayola? Something more or less like this. What about Band-Aids? Mm-hmm. When you go to a hotel, the hair products are designed for white people. This image here, I mean, what if that were your daughter? You know, we're getting better at this. Um, but you know, a white girl looking at a whole wall of darker skinned dolls, really, that's what a lot of people have experienced growing up. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but how does race shape the lives of white people? Um, One obviously is belonging. As I move throughout my day, my my race is mostly unremarkable. I see myself in TV, novels, movies, history books, um, and it's rare to experience something like Baruch talked about where you're an anomaly. when you're in that situation, it's usually presented as scary, dangerous, sketchy. Um, we're, we also see ourselves as free from the burden of race. As long as I personally haven't done anything I'm aware of, racism is a non issue for me. Um, freedom of movement. I can move in virtually any space seen as normal, neutral, or valuable. Um, you know, I talked about people being followed as they walk into high end stores or just into a pizza restaurant or places like that where kind of everyone just stops and and stares of how this is going to play out. Whereas a white person just strolls in and yeah, of course you belong. Uh, Just people, and we mean whites are just people. Our race is rarely if ever named. It's not, oh, my white friend. Or the authors you read in school, they're white because they're seen as representing that universal human experience. Whereas someone like Langston Hughes, he's a black poet. White solidarity is this unspoken agreement among whites to protect white advantage and not cause another person uh, to feel racial discomfort by confronting them when they say or do something racially problematic. Um, And what we tell ourselves is I can justify my silence because I'm not the one making those statements. So my first job out of school There was a real small office, like eight people. We'd gather up and have cake every time someone had a birthday. And one time, someone started bringing up immigrants. And of course, talking about them in a very disparaging way. And of course, talking about immigrants from Latin America. Someone said something, someone else said something, someone else said something. And then there's the rest of us that are just kind of silent. I'm looking around, you know, 22, 23 years old, thinking, "Am I the only one that realizes how racist this is?" So what did I do? Kept eating my cake. I didn't want to rock the boat. Um, the good old days. We love to think about the past and how great it was, because honestly, our position as white people went largely unchallenged. There's really been no loss of power for the white elite. If you look at the richest people on earth, the 50 richest people on earth, 29 are American. All of those are white. Of the world's 10 richest people, nine of them are white men. So really not much has changed. Uh, White racial innocence. We expect people of color to speak to issues of race because they have race, not we. They're the holders of racial knowledge. And so this implies that racism is something that happens to people of color and has nothing to do with us. It also reinforces the the imbalance of power by asking people of color to do our work. Um, And then segregated lives. So few of us acknowledge a lack of racial diversity as a problem. There's quite a few studies out there that look at how parents select schools for their children. A lot of people will say test scores are what drives them, but really when you look at where people end up the racial makeup of a school actually plays a larger role in their decision. Uh, There was one study that showed as a level of racial and ethnic integration within a school district increases, so does the percentage of white students enrolled in predominantly white charter schools. So let's not kid ourselves. We are almost out of time here, so I'll just hit these next ones real quick. Um, She talks about, Uh, Racial triggers for white people. Um, So we've talked about objectivity, white taboos, about talking openly about race. Um, So what this looks like is suggesting that a white person's viewpoint comes from a racialized frame of reference. That's a challenge to our objectivity. and We don't like that. We love to think of ourselves as objective. Um, Receiving feedback that our behavior had a racist impact, that challenges our racial, white racial innocence. If you say that, group membership is significant, that challenges my ideal of individualism. Um, So the way this usually plays out, if someone makes me feel bad or says "Mm, something I said had a racist impact, we tend to have feelings like being singled out, attacked, silenced, we might feel guilty. This leads to behaviors like crying, physically leaving, arguing, focusing on intentions, So we make claims like, well, I know people of color. You're judging me. You're generalizing. The real oppression is class or gender. You're being racist against me. Or I have suffered too. And really all of those feelings and claims are based on assumptions like racism is personal prejudice. I'm free of racism. I'll be the judge of whether racism has occurred. If I'm a good person, I can't be racist. So, how do we avoid falling into these patterns? Like I said earlier, everyone has experienced and, and you know, internalized some of these racist ideas that are all around us. So if we can just admit that, yes, I've been influenced to some degree, doesn't make me a bad person, but maybe we can say, I'm gr- grateful that you pointed that out to me. I might feel a little bit of guilt, maybe motivation to change, have compassion. This might lead me to reflect or apologize, listen, seek understanding, actually believe what someone says. Um, oh, guess that was it.
2: Uh, yeah. Pat, you had something to say? I think a couple of comments tonight we we're confusing nationalism Racism, also. So I think you need to really think about what kind of environment you're in, and really what is the prejudice or the discrimination. There's a lot of lot of white people out there with a different ethnic and national origins that mm-hmm. can discriminate against each other, also. Yeah. Perfect. I heard um, the not
4: about a week ago. Um, were uh, two it was a, a black preacher and a I'm not sure but he's black and he really works tries to work in a um for neighborhood where where it is predominantly uh, black and he said both of them said the biggest problem that the black community is facing is seventy percent of the youth, the children grow up without a father in the household. And I remember some time ago, Bill Cosby had addressed that. That was several, several years back. I'm not Bill Cosby, but he addressed that. And he said, we need to do something about that. And he actually got ostracized by the black community. He was. To them, he was a bad person. How can you bring that up? But you know, he wanted to do something
1: about it, and they just. And and we don't have a lot of time to explore all that. But I would encourage you to think about why there are so many fatherless families. In I want to take responsibility. would I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Um, Let's, let's learn about the larger systems like Hannah talked about of how people are incarcerated at abnormally high rates based on the color of their skin um, let's think about education let's think about all these ideas
4: before just saying what
1: and if the father's locked up um, there's so many factors and and that's really what I was encouraging us to to do at the beginning of class of let's not say, here's their problem, let's look inward. Because um, like I like said, it starts in the home, and for me that means let's start with examining my own beliefs, and maybe beliefs that aren't completely accurate and maybe uninformed. So. All right, I'm sure we're about to get kicked out of here. Thanks everyone.
0: Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.